Can you believe it's almost 2020? And we still don't have flying cars yet. 2020 was kind of an artificial deadline in my mind for when we needed to have flying cars. Anybody else? I just, I pictured the 2020s as flying cars. They're not here, but we still have two days. So I'm holding out hope that maybe in the next two days somebody will come up with something because it's almost 2020. I can't believe it. The 2020s are almost upon us. It's a time to stop and a time for reflection. This Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, this week right here, is the perfect time to reflect on the year, to think back on what God might be teaching you or might have already taught you. So let's look back as we wrap up this decade. Let's wind the clock back 10 years. What was your life like in 2009? 10 years ago in 2009. I'm going to give you a second. I know, 10 years. In 2009, my life was awesome. Let me tell you why. There are three things that happened to me in December of 2009 that changed my life for the better. In 2009, I was sitting right over here where these kids are sitting today. So in 10 years, in 2029, you might be up here. Watch out. It happens fast. In 2009, I was sitting over here, and in that December, I got my braces off. Thank you, Dr. Hicks. <laughs> The same month in that December, I got a driver's license, and I got a flip phone. So, I shared it with my brother. So I was sharing a flip phone, I had my braces off, I had a driver's license. I was the coolest freshman in high school ever in 2009. Things were great. I was also excited because my family had just subscribed to this weird new internet company called Netflix. And Netflix in 2009, some of you remember this, would mail you DVDs back when we had DVD players. And you'd watch the DVD and then put it in the mail and mail it back to them. And then they would mail you another DVD. Do you remember this? This was 2009, back when we still used DVD players and the mail. <laughs> so this Sunday, here we are, 2019, two days away from the 2020s. It might be hard for you to remember every single thing that happened as you're thinking back. It may be a little cloudy. So to help us reflect, because this Sunday is about reflecting on this decade, I want to run through quickly, year by year, I've gone through and chosen the most important thing from each year of the 2010s. So see if you agree with me, but I've gone through, and we'll start with 2010. I want to tell you the most important thing of every year. So in 2010, <laughs> leggings were becoming a thing, but they weren't enough. So we created jeggings. They're leggings disguised as jeans. Some of you wore these. Some of you still have these. I won't ask for a show of hands. In 2011, this one's a little hard to explain. So this is a fad called planking. I can't believe there are people in here who were born too late for planking. It was, well, it's like he's doing. You just lay flat and somebody would take a picture of you. There was no reason. I can't explain this at all, but everybody did it. In 2012, we experienced the Aztec apocalypse. There was some Aztec calendar that said the world was going to end in 2012. Do you remember this? There were end-of-the-world parties in December of 2012. People really thought these Aztecs, they figured it out. Their calendar's right. The world will end. Needless to say, here we are. In 2013, fortunately, the world didn't end so we could have the Harlem Shake. 
Do you remember this? I, I'm not even going to try to explain it. Google Harlem Shake if you don't know what it is. But everybody was doing this. It's this video where you play a song. I can still hear the song in my head. And then you act like them. There's even a guy planking on the ground. So there was still <laughs> in 2014, we, did, we all did the Ice Bucket Challenge. And this one really caught on. And finally, it was one of these fads that wasn't useless. We were donating money to something good, and everybody did the Ice Bucket Challenge. Even I did. There's probably a shameful video out there somewhere. In 2015, this gets controversial. I don't want to start this back up, y'all. I see it as white and gold. Some people saw it as blue and black. I don't know how it works, but this almost divided the nation. In 2016, Pokemon Go took over the world. Pokemon Go, you can play Pokemon on your phone out in the wild. It's a video game that got people out of their basements and into the wild so that they could look at their phone and walk into traffic trying to catch Pokemon. In 2017, these are turning into groans every time, I'm sorry. I can't explain this one either. You hold it and you spin it, and that's all it does. And everybody had one, everybody had 10, I don't know. 2018. We had the Tide Pod Challenge. I couldn't confirm if anybody ever actually did this, or if it just got a lot of hype in the news that people were doing it. But the challenge was to eat a bunch of Tide Pods, because they were like candy. And I, so I guess it's just challenging you to eat, to poison yourself. I don't know, but it, they're literally detergent, and people would eat these and get sick. And that's what we did in 2018. 2019, this year, this is kind of hard to pin down, but I'm gonna call it the Old Town Road here. Because if you haven't heard this song, this is the biggest song probably in the universe. So, I was gonna say look it up. Look it up if you wanna hear Billy Ray Cyrus try to rap, if that's your thing. He's trying to make it come down, uh, come back through rap, through a rap career, and unlike the term. So, that was 1419 in a nutshell. Let's get that off there. <laughs> New Year's is one of the best holidays. It's one of my favorite holidays because it's a natural checkpoint in the year. Some people think this is cheesy or artificial to stop and make New Year's resolutions and reflect on the year. It's the perfect time for it. All the teachers in the room will tell you, most learning doesn't happen in the moment that you learn. It happens in the moment when you reflect on the learning. And so now is the time when we can stop and look back. So since it's the end of a decade, it makes sense to pause here and reflect on how God has shown himself to us in this decade. Now next Sunday, we're going to look forward to all the incredible things that God has in store for us in the 20s. But before we do that, I want to make sure we take the time to stop and look back. How has God shown himself to you in the 2010s? What events or seasons in your life can you look back on in the last 10 years where you saw God at work in your life or in the world around you? For some context as we're pondering this story, I want to look at uh, the book of John, chapter 11, the story of Lazarus. We'll get to that in just a minute. The story of Lazarus in the book of John might be one of the times, or might be the time, that Jesus reveals himself to us more directly than anywhere in, in Scripture. In so many of his stories, I say this because so often Jesus gives us teaching. He gives us parables. He says the kingdom of his God is like this, or it's like that, without saying what it is. He gives us signs and miracles. But in the story that we're going to look at today and next week, Jesus gets personal. Jesus gets emotional. He doesn't say it's like this or it's like that. He looks at the world around him, and God himself sheds tears because of what he sees. 
we see Jesus reveal himself on a deeper level maybe than anywhere else in the Gospels. So as we're thinking backward through a decade of our lives, tracking the ways that God has revealed himself to us, this story is going to help us see what it looks like when God reveals himself to us. I learned a lot of lessons in the 2010s. I spent some time reflecting back through this decade on some of the things that I've learned. Most of the lessons I learned in the 2010s, I learned the hard way. You know, everybody's dad always told him there's two ways to learn the easy way. The hard. Well, I'm kind of a hard way kind of learner. These are some of the things that I learned in the 2010s. I learned that knowing a lot about God isn't the same thing as knowing God. I learned that sometimes you can't help people if they don't want to be helped. I learned that everyday habits slowly become who we are. I learned that we're only as sick as our secrets. And the most important thing I learned in the 2010s was the hardest thing I've ever learned in my life, but I learned how to love and accept myself. If that's something that you've never taken the time to learn, it's worth doing, but it's hard. This decade, God revealed himself to me through beautiful things, through the love of the people around me, but more often than not, he revealed himself to me through things that were painful. Heart-wrenching pain. Pain like I never thought I could experience. How has God revealed himself to you in the 2010s? The most important lessons we learn in life, I think, often require the most powerful teaching. The Bible is full of this truth from cover to cover. Abraham, trudging up the side of Mount Moriah with his son Isaac, believing the whole way that he'd have to sacrifice that only son just to learn a lesson. The most important lessons, they often require the most powerful teaching. Noah, building the ark for a hundred years in a land that had never seen a drop of rain, getting ridiculed and questioned the whole way. Israel, wandering in the desert for 40 years, as a generation passed away and was left in the sand just to help leave their doubt behind them. The Old Testament prophets degrading themselves in ridiculous and unbelievable ways just to spread the message of God to a stubborn and hard-hearted people. The most important lessons often require the hardest teaching. Think of the prodigal son who ran away from his father. He thought he was enough to be self-sufficient on his own. And in order to come to his senses, he was starving to death, lost all his money, was eating pig's food. And we look at the prodigal son eating the pig's food. We lean against the railing of the pig's thigh and say, poor guy, if only he'd listened, if only he'd paid attention. And then we turn around and rage against the problems in our own life because we forget that the most important lessons require that hardest teaching. When we watch that poor prodigal eating slop, or Abraham walking up the side of Mount Moriah, not knowing if he'll walk back down with his son or not. We're looking in the mirror. God is using our pain in a way that we can't imagine. He's using our pain to give us a vantage point we could never get any other way. And this is what we see in the story of Lazarus. If you have your Bible, it's in John chapter 11, and we'll start reading in verse 1. I need to warn you up front. We're going to do this in two parts. So, the back half of the story of Lazarus, we're going to cover that next week. So you have to come, or you're never going to know what happens to Lazarus. We're only going to do the first half of this week. It's going to be a cliffhanger. Let's start reading in verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. 
No, it's for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. The question we need to answer today is the first word in verse 6, if you're following along. This is a sneaky little Greek article that means thus, or therefore, or accordingly, or consequently. It's the most important word in the passage we just read. The word means that what follows it is a direct consequence of what came before it. Now, usually I don't want to dig down into the Greek and what the Greek means. It's usually not helpful or worthwhile to pit different translations against each other. But as I was looking at this passage, some translations don't translate this word as therefore or thus. Some translations pop out and translate it as but or yet, which is incorrect. Some translations leave out the word altogether, like the King James just doesn't translate this word because it's hard to explain. It has to be so or therefore. That's what the word means. It's the same word used in verse 14, 36, 41, 45, all in the same chapter. And every other time, it's translated as therefore. But in some translations, they try to translate it as but or yet because it's a hard word to explain. Look at how the flow of this story goes. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, because of his love for them, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Lazarus, his friend, who he loved, was dying. Now we know from earlier in the book of John chapter 4 that Jesus can heal somebody with a word. He doesn't even have to go. He can just say a word and then get healed. And we know Jesus loves this man who's dying. And because of his love for him, he does nothing. That doesn't seem like it makes sense, does it? How is that love? How is it the result of your love for somebody that you could save them from dying and you do nothing? Now this is a story all about love. John makes that clear right off the bat. Did you notice? Go back on the slide there in verse 2 of this chapter. Verse 2 is strange. This parenthetical, this is the Mary, uh, the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. That didn't happen yet in the book. That actually happens in the next story in John chapter 12. John is spoiling the next story just to let you know exactly which character this is. It's out of order. It's mentioned here early because it demonstrates the depths of intimacy and love between these people, between Jesus and this family. She's going to wipe his feet with her hair in the next story. And then in verse 3, they, they describe Lazarus they don't say to him, Lord, Lazarus is sick. When they said, Lord, they said, Lord, the one you love is sick. And then in verse 5, here on the next slide, we see it spelled out right for us. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. John wants to beat us over the head with this on the front end of the story. Jesus loves these people. And then he puts in that word, therefore, because of his love, he waits. Gospel writers don't waste space. They don't throw around unnecessary words. And three times as this story begins, John tells us how much Jesus loves these people. And we need to stress this because almost nobody on earth sees this action as loving. Jesus had the ability to help his friend, but he waited and he let him die. It doesn't seem like love. Unless maybe he knows something we don't. 
This part of the story never bothered me. It may have never bothered you. Usually when we read the story of Lazarus, this part isn't the focus. It's on the resurrection of Lazarus that comes later. But the resurrection only happened because Jesus first waited and let Lazarus die. But this part didn't bother me because Lazarus doesn't stay dead, so why does it matter that Jesus let him die? He's going to come back to life later. It shouldn't be a problem. But that answer doesn't take Jesus seriously enough. That answer doesn't treat Jesus like a real person. Sometimes we forget that Jesus isn't some character in a book. He's not some guy in a fake story from thousands of years ago, some myth or parable. Jesus Christ was a real person. He felt anger and concern and heartbreak. What do you think Jesus felt during those two days, waiting for his friend to die? Jesus knew, wherever he was during those two days, he knew the exact moment that Lazarus drew his final breath. He felt in the hours leading up to that final breath, Lazarus laying on his deathbed, hoping, maybe Jesus will come and save me. Wondering, did he get the message? Why isn't he here? Does he love me at all? As those hours ticked by, and the desperation and the despair as he drew his final breath. Jesus heard the tearful prayers of the sisters, Mary and Martha, during those two days. Their desperate pain, thinking maybe Jesus will come. Maybe Jesus will have mercy and save us. And as the days went by, trying not to doubt, trying to remember that he loves them, and then he didn't come. Jesus felt all of that. He knew their feelings of hurt and betrayal. See, death is never an easy thing. And just the fact somebody's going to be raised, to the dead, raised from the dead later doesn't make it any easier. As Christians, we believe that we'll all be raised from the dead someday, and yet when one of us dies, it's still a sad thing. Death is a sad thing. It's like when you're a kid at the dentist, and your mom says something like, it's okay, it'll all be over soon. It doesn't make it any easier. When they've got a jackhammer in your mouth, and they're taking off your braces, and you're laying there like, this is the way. It doesn't make it any easier to think it'll all be over soon. Pain is pain. Anytime that it happens, anywhere. And Jesus felt this pain when his friend Lazarus died, but he waited. We're going to see this more next week. It happens later in the story, but as Jesus is led to Lazarus' tomb to raise him up, he weeps. You know the famous verse. It's just two words long. Jesus wept. It's a powerful sentence. The king of the universe, convulsing in tears. The almighty creator, actually crying. And it doesn't make sense logically, does it? Why cry about a death five minutes before you're going to go reverse that death? This isn't about logic. This story shows us Jesus was not a robot. He was a man. And in this story, we see his heart. See, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ feels our pain when we hurt. It matters to him. Even if he's going to fix it later, it matters to him when we hurt and he cares. He's not some distant royalty who's indifferent to the suffering of his creation. God has walked in this dirt. He has felt tears pour down his cheeks. God knows our pain, and it bothers him, even though he lets it happen. While Jesus waited for these two days, doing nothing to help his dying friend, the people that he loved, they were processing that death. They started mourning. There would be a funeral procession through the town. Everybody would come out of their homes. There would be a lone trumpeter walking in front of the procession, taking a few steps and stopping to blow the trumpet, while the people behind him wailed, falling on their knees, crying. They'd slowly make their way through the town, the family followed by the dead body, followed by the entire town until they got to the tomb. 
They would put the body inside it, and they would roll the stone over, never to be moved again. And then they would go home, and they would keep crying. They would keep mourning, because Jesus didn't come, so there was nothing else they could do. As we think back over the 2010s, reflecting on this decade, reflecting on how God has shown up and how God has changed our lives, some of us in this room this morning have walked in that funeral procession through that town, mourning their brother Lazarus when Jesus didn't come. Some of us are walking in that funeral procession through that town today. In this past decade, some of us sent word to Jesus, telling him that we needed his help for something, that we couldn't fix on our own, and we were met with silence. Some of us prayed desperate, faithful prayers to Jesus this decade, and he never answered them. We're here this morning. We're exhausted. Maybe we feel betrayed because of what this decade has done to our family, to our health, to our country, to our career. We're ending these 2010s and maybe we're losing hope. Wondering the same question that John wants us to wonder when we start reading chapter 11 of his gospel. How could this be love? Jesus loved them, therefore he waited. Let's keep reading in verse seven. But Rabbi, his disciples said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he'd said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death. But his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. Even the disciples couldn't believe that Jesus would wait until he died. They thought he must still be alive because Jesus is only going now. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go there. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with Jesus gives us the answer to our question here. If you're following along, it's in verse 15. How was it love for Jesus to wait for Lazarus to die? He tells us exactly how. He says, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. He goes as far as to say he's glad that he wasn't there. He's glad that his friend died and his family is suffering. Because when it comes to Jesus, there's something that's more important than suffering. There's something that's more important than life itself. And he tells us what it is right here. Belief. It was loving to let Lazarus suffer and die. To let his village bury him in sorrow and agony. Because Jesus knew that this would help produce belief. Let that sink in for a minute. Before we get excited to claim Jesus as our master and dedicate our lives to following him, we need to remember how Jesus treats his friends. If you're going to follow and serve Jesus, you better not be surprised and say, Are you kidding me, Jesus? You're going to let me go through this suffering? You're going to give me that diagnosis or ruin my career or destroy my home? Jesus, you're going to allow my depression or my regret, a selfishness, 
anxiety or addiction. You're going to let my family crumble. You're going to watch our country go over the edge. Jesus, you're going to wait until two days after you get my prayer for help until my brother is dead and buried, and then you're going to reply, just so that I might believe? <clears throat> because the answer is yes, he will. And he's glad he wasn't there. That's how important this is to him. Belief isn't the best thing in a list of things. For Jesus, belief is the only thing that matters. It's more important than anything else. Some days, I don't want to pay this high of a cost. Some days, I don't want to follow this kind of Savior who could ask me to give up everything just so that I could believe in him more. There's only three or four places in all of the Gospels that describe Jesus as being glad or Jesus as rejoicing at anything, and this is one of them. It's a fact that either Jesus loves us or Jesus doesn't love us, and I think he does. And if this is what it looks like when somebody loves us, then maybe the problem is we don't understand what love looks like. Our culture teaches us that love is a feeling, that love is a subjective thing, an unquantifiable thing, that love means giving somebody whatever they want and affirming them no matter what they do, but we know that that's not true because we have a book written by love itself, about love, for the purpose of love, and that's not what the book says love is. If you're ending the 2010s, wrapping up this decade disappointed by the way that God has loved you, or wondering if he still loves you at all, you need to go back and need to find love according to what the Bible says love is. Jesus loved Mary. He loved Martha. He loved Lazarus. And because of that love, he waited. And the Bible says the whole point was one thing, belief. Jesus doesn't love us by giving us whatever we want. Jesus loves us by helping us believe. That's the way he loves us. That's the way we love each other. We help each other believe. If we're going to start off this new decade right, we need to ask, what is most important to us? What do you care about most, your health? your reputation, your job, your possessions, or your belief in God? Doesn't it make sense to sacrifice all of that just to help you believe if that's really the only thing that matters? Another thing I learned during the 2010s, and I'm sure a lot of you learned the same lesson, was how to suffer. But I don't regret the suffering that I went through, and I don't blame God, because I believe in God so much more in 2019 than I ever could have believed in Him in 2009. I prayed unanswered prayers for years in the last 10 years. I asked desperate questions to God. I thought I needed to know, and I heard only silence. I got disappointed with Him. I got frustrated with Him. I got depressed, all because I had this picture in my head of what love was supposed to look like, and I was wrong. The way Jesus loved me during that entire time was by not giving me what I thought I wanted so that I could believe more when I realized what I did want. And today I praise God because he didn't answer those prayers. In 1 Corinthians 13, maybe the most famous chapter in the Bible, the most well-known passage, probably besides John 3.16, Paul is describing love. We probably all know this first. Do you remember how it starts? Let's say it together at the beginning. Love is patient. The first word Paul uses to describe love. Have you ever thought about this? The most powerful force in the universe, the defining feature of God, and Paul's going to describe love. And the first thing he needs us to know about love is that love is 
patient. How patient has God been with you this decade? How much has he hurt with you, listening to every agonized prayer that he couldn't answer at the time? How hard was that for him? Because love is patient. How hard was it for him to wait those two long days for you to go into the grave so that he could reveal his glory and help you believe on the other side? Because love is patient. Jesus had to wait two long days for Lazarus to die. How long has he been waiting for you? The story of Lazarus shows us that love is patient, that God hurts with us while he waits for us, and that he will wait no matter how much it hurts him, no matter how long it takes, days or decades, he waits for us. Not waiting with anger or annoyance at our hard hearts, he waits for us with tears. In the next couple of days, as you think back on this decade, as we draw to a close, if unanswered prayers that you've been praying are holding you back from belief, if your unredeemed pain is holding you back from belief, just remember that love is patient. Just like Jesus was patient to allow suffering to produce belief, we have to be patient, because until Jesus showed up, those people mourning in that village couldn't possibly have known what God had planned for Lazarus. But we'll see next week, he had a plan the whole time that they just couldn't see. Maybe it's been two days for you, or maybe two decades, but you can't see God's plan either. Resurrection is coming. Next week, we're going to look forward. Next week, we're going to broadcast into the 2020s and see how God is going to love us there and watch exactly how Jesus uses his friend's death to produce belief. But before we get there, I want to make sure we pause to look back because spiritual growth almost never comes in the moment. It comes in the reflection on the moment. No spiritual growth is only unlocked from memory. We can't afford to miss it here. Don't miss the lesson because you forget to look back. How has God revealed himself to you in the 2010s? How has he been patient with you? How has he helped you to believe? How has he wept with you? It's there that we meet him, and we see the real God who we serve. Let's pray. God, we thank you for waiting for us, for being patient with us. For listening to every prayer, even if you can't answer it at the time. For crying with us when we cry. For hurting with us when we hurt. As we move from this time of celebration into a time of anticipation of this new year, we praise you for being with us, for guiding us, even when we doubt you. I pray that you help everyone in here, that you open our minds to reflect on this time we're leaving behind, that we can see you in it that we can see how you've waited for us and see how you've led us in all those ways and through it believe in you more and give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Lord, we need your grace and mercy. We need you pray like never before. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to
Jesus cares for me in the church.